getting ready to have a live session. This Billy Holiday. So I don't play jazz. I'm not a swinger. My good friend Jason Crane. Now it's jazz. Now it's jazz. Now it's now it's now it's jazz. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. Really, really glad you're here for a jazz interview podcast that gives you a glimpse behind the music. Copyright VH1. Today you're going to hear an interview with tenor saxophonist Grant Stewart, who came here to Rochester, New York, home of the Jazz Session, to play with the guitarist Bob Snyder at the Strathallen. Uh, Bob Snyder is a great guitar player who uh, you may have seen with Joe Locke, uh, he's also got a bunch of albums uh, of his own right and several duet recordings over the last couple of years that have been uh, critical favorites that he has recorded with pianist Paul Hoffman. For years, Bob held down a gig at the Little Theater uh, here in Rochester, kind of our art house movie theater, and they have a, a beautiful cafe that has live jazz every night. But recently, Bob has switched to the Strathallen Hotel, which is a kind of upscale hotel on East Avenue in Rochester. And he plays there in the lounge on Fridays and Saturdays, and the place has been packed consistently. And that has allowed Bob to bring in a lot of great talent. We had uh, Pat LaBarbera this past weekend, and a couple weeks ago we had Grant Stewart. And when Grant was here, I had the pleasure of sitting down and uh, talking to him about his music. And that interview will be coming up in just a couple of minutes. Don't forget, you can find every episode of The Jazz Session, plus a whole lot more, at thejazzsession.com. And uh, you can also contact me via that site. Let me know what you think of the show. Also, feel free to suggest jazz artists with whom you'd like to uh, hear some interviews. As I mentioned, tenor saxophonist Grant Stewart was here in Rochester a couple of weeks ago, playing at the Strathallen Hotel with Bob Snyder. He also uh, taught some master classes over at the Eastman School of Music, where Bob is on the faculty. Grant has a new album out on Sharp Nine Records. It's called In the Still of the Night. It came out this year, 2007. It features pianist Tardo Hammer and the bass and drum combination of Peter Washington and Joe Farnsworth. Uh, Joe Farnsworth, who's made uh, some memorable appearances here in Rochester at our jazz festival. Uh, this is an album uh, primarily of, of standards, and we're going to hear a real burner, the opening track and the title track. This is tenor saxophonist Grant Stewart with In the Still of the Night. Mm-hmm. 
That was tenor saxophonist Grant Stewart with a sample from his new CD, In the Still of the Night. Tardo Hammer on the piano there, Peter Washington on bass, and Joe Farnsworth on drums. When Grant was here in town, uh, he and I sat down in his hotel room and talked for a little while about his life and his career in the jazz business. Without any further ado, take you now to that interview with Grant Stewart, here on The Jazz Session. I know that you grew up in Toronto and that your dad was a uh, guitar player and mm-hmm. introduced you to jazz pretty early, a lot earlier than a lot of kids yeah. first get exposed yeah. to it. What did, uh, did, you, did you take to it right away? Did you think, oh, this is my dad's old music? What was your first reaction to it? Um, there wasn't any immediate rebellion to it. I was just kind of used to it. He used to play a lot of Fats Waller that I thought you know, I used to like because it was hilarious. If you're ever depressed, put on some Fats Waller and I, I works better than Prozac. <laughs> you know, that's for sure. I remember just hearing a lot, you know, he played a lot of Fats Waller and Louis Jordan and Louis Armstrong and stuff around the house and... No, I, 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 there wasn't any rebellion. I don't think there was ever any real rebellion musically. Although when I was, you know, twelve, thirteen, I, I, you know, I listened to a lot of rock music then, and, and I tried to convince them to uh, let me quit saxophone so I could learn to play guitar because I really liked Eddie Van Halen. And thank God he wouldn't let me quit saxophone lessons. He's, I, I tried to convince him he'd, he'd save fifteen dollars a week if he just, t- you know, let me play guitar and he could teach me guitar and he said no if you want I'll give you guitar lessons too and you can keep on with the saxophone thank God he did not let me quit why do you think he did that why do you think he was adamant about you continuing on the saxophone because I was a little punk kid and didn't know what was best for me <laughs> I thank God because he you know he, they used to make me practice every day and I thank God they made me practice every day you know because I there used to be some fights at the house I had to do my half hour a day you know when you're 10 years old you don't necessarily want to be practicing, so there was there was some fighting, but uh, I I'm very grateful to my mother and my father for not letting me quit. And on top of that, that you know we played hockey and lacrosse and all sorts of sports, so they were very they were great parents in the sense that they really dedicated a lot of time to lessons, rehearsals, practices, games for me and my brother. That's really it's refreshing because you, I've talked to a lot of people who say you know oh right yeah right from the beginning <clears throat> I used to love to spend four hours a night in my room. You know, playing my horn. I think yeah. I, maybe it is. Maybe that's how most professional musicians distinguish themselves from the pack. But I mean, it seems like there's got to be a lot of folks who are playing for a living now who did not want to spend time. Yeah. Going through it, a lesson book. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, you know, up until I was 14, from so from 10 to 14, 10 to 13, I, you know, I like to practice. I would practice. You know, after maybe 12 years old, I started to to get into it more. And then by the time I was 14, that's the summer I really started practicing. I practiced like three, four hours a day, and, and really, really got into it. How did you first choose the saxophone? I didn't really choose it. I first chose drums. And I called up the music store and set up lessons and rented uh, drums and everything. And, and then I told my parents that I had drum lessons, and they were like, no way. <laughs> like, you're not taking drum lessons. I really wanted to play drums. I thought drums were the coolest instrument. And once again, I have to thank my parents for not letting me play drums, because... <laughs> It, things would have turned out a lot differently for me. Made <laughs> me call up the music store and cancel the lessons. And uh, my father made me take saxophone lessons. I took piano lessons for a little bit before I, you know, when I was like eight years old or something. But then, uh, yeah, my dad's favorite instrument was the saxophone, and he loved, you know, Bird and Lester Young and everyone. And and, and he just liked the saxophone, so he, he rented me a saxophone and got me a really good teacher up in Toronto, a guy named Pete Schofield. 
and started me on saxophone lessons and uh and it worked out fine because my brother you know my brother ended up my brother's a drummer phil St philip stewart and uh my sister at the time her her boyfriend was a drummer and and he gave a set of drums to the donated to my brother in the house and so there were drums in the house so i got to play drums and play saxophone so now you said at 14 that summer when you were 14 you really started practicing was there something that that turned the switch? Um, I took a lesson with Pat LaBarbera mm. that really kind of got me got me interested. Also, I started, you know, I played my first professional gig when I was 14. Was that kind with Schofield? It was band? a big band, yeah. It's a New Year's Eve gig. I have a really funny picture of me in, in a powder blue tuxedo jacket with uh, braces. <laughs> nice. It's, uh, it's my Style. first New Year's Eve gig, and I look like... Michael Anthony Hall out of uh, The Breakfast Club or something. Even, even dorkier. <laughs> so how did you get the lesson with Pat LaBarbera? Uh, Pat was around. and, and I mean, he lives in Toronto, still right. lives in Toronto. I somehow, I can't remember how I got in My father was friends with the guy that ran Humber College. And my dad knew a lot of musicians, knows a lot of musicians in Toronto. He still, he still plays around Toronto. He was a, a full-time English teacher and part-time musician, and now he's retired, so he... Just plays and practices, and he's playing better than ever now that he's retired. So that's great. Yeah. What was it about the lesson with Pat that made the difference? He showed me a couple of things. It just kind of opened up improvising, just some stuff about chords and, and scales and stuff that my my teacher had taught me about chords. I knew I knew about arpeggios and chords, and he had taught me the basics of improvisation. But Pat gave me a couple of things that just kind of got me into it a little more. And were you playing in a jazz band in your school or anything? At 14, no. It wasn't until I was like 15 or 16 I, I started going to an arts high school. And uh, I had a quartet, quintet there. And so were you playing in the big band through all that time as well? Yeah, I played in the big, in the big band, Pete Schofield band, up until about, I guess, 16 or 17 maybe. And then... More kind of small group stuff, or yeah, and then I just kind of st I can't remember what happened. I I, I just kind of stopped doing it. Yeah, we just do like quartet gigs and sitting in and got my own little gigs around Toronto. And so, were you thinking about this as a career already at that point? Yeah, by that point I was. I was a goalie in hockey, and so that had kind of been when I was young. That was kind of one of my one of my aspirations and until, you know, I, I turned 14 years old and the kids started to weigh like 200 pounds and then pucks being shot at you at, you know, 200 miles an hour weren't, it wasn't, it wasn't as fun as it was when the kids were a little smaller. So I thought there was more of a future in, in music, I guess. So. And did your folks think that was? That was yeah, my, my folks were 100% behind me. Yeah, very, very fortunate. A lot of support from home. Yeah, they let me get away with a lot of stuff. I used to cut a lot of school and practice, and, and then sometimes cut school and not practice. <laughs> but they, they were, in, in retrospect, if I was my own parent, I probably would have uh, whooped my butt. But they were, they were very good to me. But you'd set your sights on doing it professionally. You'd gone to an arts high school, and what seemed to be the next logical step? I had thought that if I got a scholarship to Berkeley or something, I would go to Berkeley. But I ended up getting a, uh, I got a Canada Council's grant and uh, moved down to study privately and live in New York when I was, after high school. So a Canada Council grant funds is, is a block of money that they get? Yeah, they give you a study. chunk of money and pay your, it pays for your rent and lessons and expenses and stuff, so. 
It was and great. You came down and studied with some pretty cool people. Yeah, I took some lessons with, you know, I mean, I went to the Barry Harris class every week for maybe a year, year or so. I took a couple of lessons with Donald Byrd, which were really interesting. And uh, Why? Um, he just, you know, he said some stuff to me that he really made it clear to me how important Charlie Parker was. You know, also, you know, before I moved down to New York, I I was hanging out a lot with uh, Bob Mover, who became like a mentor, and, and he really helped me a lot. He turned me on to a lot of music, and, and I never took an official lesson from him, but it would be like, I'd call him up, and I'd be like, what changes do you play at the end of at the uh, the last couple of bars of Lush Life? And he'd be like, well, you can do this, this, this. He's like, well, why don't you just come over, and we'll hang out. And I'd go over to his house, and we'd hang out until 6 in the morning, just, you know, Playing and listening to, to tapes and, and talking about music, so he was he was a great. I, I still see, he lives in New York now, so I see him every so often. Cool. Yeah, Donald Byrd was 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 cool, just mainly mainly for that. And then I took you know I took a, a, a couple of lessons with different people. It's Blessed with Lovano, George Coleman, but mainly uh, just shedding, going to the Barry Harris class and playing sessions. And, and what was happening in the Barry Harris class? Um, he just has his class every, uh, I think he still does it every Tuesday night. He used to do it Mondays and Tuesday nights in Midtown. So it would just be Barry and he'd just do the Barry Harris thing, you know. He has a whole system that he, that he teaches. But it was great just to watch, watch his mind work and, and he's such a creative, he's like the, uh, the Yoda of the uh, jazz world, man. He's, he's a genius. And so what was the importance of Charlie Parker that you took out of Donald He basically just said that Train and Sonny and, and Sonny Stitt and, and pretty much everybody after Bird was just playing Bird. They may sound a little different, but all of their stuff was basically Bird-derived. Do you still think that's the case? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And how do you see yourself kind of in that lineage? <laughs> I don't. I don't really mean, Charlie Parker yeah. and John Coltrane. Uh, right yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I I listen to a lot of Bird. I I I, love, I still, you know, I go back to every time I go back to Bird, I hear it new, you know, which is a sign of a great of a genius. Is when you go back and it's different. Every time you go back, the more your ears open up and grow, you you start to see it differently. It gets better and different. So the list of people with whom you've performed is. Very long and very impressive, and I'm wondering how you uh, how you started opening the doors for yourself when you first got to New York. I mean, it's not like I've had a stellar career for 16 years, since more of 16 and a half or whatever since I moved down there. When I first moved down, there was a, there was a lot of lean years in there. I, I, I moved down at a good good time because my roommate, when I moved down, was going to the new school, so I could go to the new school and practice and hang out. And they actually thought that I went there for the first six <laughs> months. And then they got hip to the fact that I I wasn't paying uh, any tuition or anything, and they they asked me not to practice there. And, but uh, but I I got to meet you know Bern, Peter Bernstein was there, Brad Meldow was there, Larry Goldings, Jesse Davis, you know there was a lot of great young players there at the same time. So it was just uh, you know I made a lot of friends there, and uh, and then just. Playing around, and I, you know, ended up playing with them, and and it was it was a it was a good, good little, you know, good decade, I guess, to to be around there. There's a lot of good players. Was there a was there a moment for you, a particular gig, a particular uh, phone call that you got that that 
opened some doors that are still benefiting you now? Yeah, it's just kind of been accumulation. I mean, I haven't had, you know, I've been I've been very fortunate. I mean, getting called by Jimmy Cobb to play with this group is, is always, even when it happens now, is always a thrill. Played with Al Gray for the last year of his life. That was great. Getting to work with him. Talk a little more about that. How did um, you get that? I got that gig through Bobby Durham, the drummer. And and Joe Cohn had been the guitar player with Al Gray for a long time. And but it was it was Bobby Durham that got me on the gig. It was great. I wish Al was still alive because I I had only just started to work with him. You know, Joe I think Joe had worked with him for fourteen years or something and, and Bobby had worked with him for thirty or something, you know. He'd been there. He worked with Basie and he worked with everyone. And he was a real hard ass on the bandstand. He was really old school. If he didn't like something, he'd let you know on the spot, you know. <laughs> he was very, yeah. It was intimidating, but it was also good, you know. He'd get on you, man. If you were doing something, trading with the drums or anything, and you went even like a beat over in your fours, he'd be screaming, get out of there, get out of there, you know. But he'd also let you know when you played well. He, you know, he, he, was, he, he was cool to me. He was good to me, and he, it was a great experience. That's pretty. It, it's great too because there aren't that many guys left with as much life experience as a guy like Al Gray no. had had. And Clark Terry. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No, I was very. I was very. Uh, very lucky to to get to hang with him. Did you get to hear some good stories about the? He, he had some good stories. The best one I'll I'll tell you later. <laughs> <laughs> So we don't have to they have another... Content, right? They were blue. Talk about recording your first album as a leader. The first album as a leader was uh, for Criss Cross right. with uh, Joe Magnarelli and Brad Meldow and uh, Kenny and Peter Washington. And that was actually from... Uh, we had a gig, or I had a steady gig with the drummer Johnny Ellis at a place called the ST Bar, something probably in 1991. And it was down in uh, Alphabet City on 11th Street in between B and C, which back then was just like, was a serious, seriously bad neighborhood, you know, it was a, a lot of drugs and a lot of, it was, it was kind of scary, you know, but uh, we had a steady Thursday night there, and it became kind of, it became the hang, it was like, it was just one of those kind of magic gigs where, you know, for a year or so, it's just a really, it was a really, really good gig, and everybody used to come down and hang out, and we'd have different people on the gig every week, and and Peter Bernstein recommended me to Jerry Teakins, and I sent Jerry a tape. And uh, he liked it, and he called me up, and we did a record. So I was, I was like 21 or something on the record. I, I think back now, and I'm like, geez. <laughs> I mean, it was great for me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to, to have done it, but I, I had to listen to a bit of it lately, and it's like, wow. I was really young when I think back. What was it like stepping in the studio for the first time? It was cool, because I played with, you know, I knew Brad. Brad's a friend of mine. And, and me and Joe had a band. Joe had was on the gig too at the ST bar. Okay. So we worked together a lot. It was cool. It was fun, you know. And then uh, obviously, gone on over the years to record a number of albums, including the one that I'm holding in my hand right mm -hmm. now in the still of the night, um, in which we find Peter Washington again and uh, mm -hmm. Joe Farnsworth, Tardo Hammer. Talk a little bit about this. It's a date I did in October, last October. It's my first one for uh, for Sharp Nine, so I'm excited about it. I think it turned out the I think the recording quality on it is really good. Systems too, they did a great job. Is that and, Matt uh, Brody's place? No, it's the uh, Marciano Brothers. Oh, that's right. Okay, that's right. Joe Marciano engineered it, that's right. and uh, he did a great job. 
can't really go wrong with Tartle Hammer and, and Farnsworth on drums and, and P-Wash. You know, it's just a swinging rhythm section. So it was good. It was a pretty relaxed date. And are these, are any of these guys on your regular Smalls gig? Um, no, but I work with, you know, I work with Tardo and, and uh, I work with them in different, different uh, groups. I don't know. We should talk about the Smalls gig. Yeah, Smalls every Tuesday night. I'm there with Joe Cohn on guitar, uh, who's unbelievable. He's just a fantastic guitar player. And uh, my brother on drums, Philip Stewart. And uh, not just my brother, but he's one of my favorite drummers. You know, he's a great, great drummer. Ehud Sherry, great young piano player. And Joel Forbes, mm. bass player, great, huge, huge sound. That's great. Yeah. And Smalls is a real kind of musician's hang. A lot of your colleagues and... Yeah, and yeah, a lot of the guys come down and hang. How did you first get in at Smalls? I got a call, like, I can't remember what year it was. I think it opened in 94, maybe. I got a call from this friend of mine who's a, a guitar player, Brandon Stranzel. I mean, he doesn't play anymore, but he, he called me up and he's like, I just met this guy and I'm booking the music at his club. He's opening up this club and I want you, he gave me all these dates. And I was like, wow, sounds kind of funny. He's like, there's going to be music every night, it's going to be great. And I, he's like, I want you to come down and meet him. So he, you know, I met him and went down to the club and it hadn't even opened yet. And it was Mitch Borden, the owner. Mm -hmm down there putting up all the stuff on the walls and everything and and then I just started working there and they had when they opened up they had ten dollars to get in and it was free beer and wine <laughs> and it was open all night free beer and wine for ten dollars and the cops put an end to that because he didn't have a liquor license so you can't even give it away if you're I guess if you're charging a cover you're not technically giving it away but uh, so then they had free food they had free rice and beans Mitch is, Mitch is great. I love Mitch. He comes up with some crazy ideas. He had free, free rice and beans in the club for a while. But it was a great hang. It was open. You know, it was open all night. It was open until 8 in the morning. And, and there'd be, you know, some, an early show, and then a middle show, and then a, a session, jam session after that. What does a regular weekly gig like that do for you musically? That It's just great to have a steady it? gig. Yeah. I mean, it's great to, with your own band that you can just go in and you know, build up repertoire and just work out, you know. And also it's good just to have a place where you can say, come down, you know, a place where you're always at. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely grateful to have a, a steady gig in New York. You just managed to play with so many fantastic people, and I'm not sure how to delicately ask this question, but while remaining maybe a little bit under the radar of, you know, folks who just flip on a jazz radio station, yeah. for example, are, are there out there in New York a million guys who are playing who, you know, folks in the Midwest aren't going to find out about, but who are keeping a really good career together. There's some great, you know, there's some great players that, that don't get much recognition. Chris Byers is a great saxophone player that doesn't get any recognition. He's one of my favorites. He's got uh, a couple of records out on the Smalls record label. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend checking him out. He's he's a totally un underrated, under-the-radar type player. But there's some, yeah, some, there's some guys out there that, that don't get all that. You know, Tardo Hammer is another guy that definitely worthy of a lot more w wider recognition than he gets. You know, with me, it's um, you know, I've been in the city for 16 years, and it's it's been great. And if I didn't get any recognition before now or whatever, it's just the way it was meant to be. It's fine, you know. I've, I've been slowly but steadily progressing musically, so I'm in no rush. Yeah. You said when you uh, the other day when you were listening back to your first record and thinking about how young you were, what do you what do you hear back in that first record that is, or what don't you hear? Maybe that's there now. I don't know. I, I, I'm just young. I was like 20, 21. 
seems so long ago now, and I I hear it back. I mean, I'm, I'm my worst critic. I, sure. you know, I can't I can't stand to listen to myself. So, and I especially can't stand to listen to myself from that long ago. <laughs> it's, it sounds good for a 21 year old. Right. <laughs> yeah. What's coming up for you in terms of uh, gigs, folks? You know? Immediate future. At Smalls next, I think it's the 10th, 9th and 10th of February. Does that sound yeah, right? That's two weeks. More than a week away, yeah, two weeks. Sorry. Then the weekend after that, I'm in Philly at Chris's Jazz Cafe with a two-tonner group with me and Eric. Oh, Alexander. great. That's a fun band. It's a good plan. We just did a thing for a, a salute to Lou Donaldson. They gave Lou Donaldson an award in the, at the Tribeca Arts Center, a Jack Klein singer production. And we did the two-tenor band with Eric and... Joe Farnsworth and Hazel Tynum, David Hazel Tynum, great, piano, yeah. and uh, John Weber on bass. That was fun. And then Lou, Cyrus Chestnut played with his group. And then after that, Lou came on with Lonnie Smith and Randy Johnson, Fuku. So it was nice. That's cool. Yeah. I think the first show I ever saw when I came to Rochester, or the first time I lived in Rochester, was uh, Lou and Lonnie and Kenny Burrell oh, doing wow. like a soul jazz <clears throat> salute in a tent. Downtown uh -huh. in tribute to this old club that used to be here where they all used to play, and that yeah, was amazing. And and he still, I mean, they all still can shred even now. And yeah, that yeah, was twenty years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lou's playing great. We we got up at the end and played uh, Cherokee. Me and Eric played Cherokee with him, and uh, he's playing. Uh, he's playing great still. And you uh, was Eric on Estate? Is that the record? Estate or Estate? Yeah. Sorry, that's right. It's the, uh, <laughs> it's Italian. It's word the Italian thing. That's right. Yeah, he played yeah. on a couple of tunes on, on that record. And then we have the two tenor records that we've done for Criss Cross. So. What's that like, the, the two tenor front line for you? Is that, That's it, fun. It sounds like it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a workout. You know, there's no, no slouching, no room for, you know, can't let down for a second. You know, Eric's a great, great saxophone player. He's a lot of fun to play with. He's also good, you know, he's a good friend. He's a really good guy. That's great. You guys have known each other for a long time? Yeah. yeah. If folks want to find out more about you... I know they can visit you on the web. Yeah, yeah. www.grantstewartjazz.com. It's a mailing list there and schedule and everything. Well, that's great. I appreciate cool. your time. Man. No problem. That was an interview with tenor saxophonist Grant Stewart. Grant's got a new album on Sharp Nine Records called In the Still of the Night. I'm Jason Crane. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. You can find this show and all the future shows, plus a whole lot more, at thejazzsession.com. If you enjoy jazz interviews, you might want to check out interviews by me and many other very fine jazz interviewers. Not to say that I'm a very fine jazz interviewer. I guess I don't suck as much as would be possible. Uh, you can find many, many jazz interviews, CD reviews, concert listings, and a whole lot more at allaboutjazz.com. If you want to contact the show, just send an email to jason at thejazzsession.com or you can leave a voicemail at 585-643-5151. While you're at thejazzsession.com, please join the mailing list. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes so you'll always get it. And a big thanks to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for our theme music and to artist Dave Rabel who did all the graphics on the website. Until next time, you've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane.